Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Coming to you from my home office, it's Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes, in for Jesse Thorne. Giancarlo Esposito was born in Copenhagen, the son of an Italian stagehand and an American singer. He and his family moved to New York City when he was six years old, and before long, he took up acting, performing on Broadway at first, then, as he grew up, movies. He appeared in many of Spike Lee's early films. And if you remember him for one role back then, it's probably as Buggin' Out, the guy who organizes a boycott of Sal's Pizzeria and Do the Right Thing. He's appeared in dozens of other movies and TV shows. Recently, he's gotten a lot of acclaim for playing Gus Fring. Gus first appeared in Breaking Bad, a mild-mannered but intense owner of a restaurant franchise who moonlights as a massively influential drug kingpin. Giancarlo reprises his role in Better Call Saul, which just wrapped up its fifth season on AMC. The role has earned Giancarlo two Emmy nominations. And you're about to hear why. This is an iconic moment from Breaking Bad. Gus has just met Walter White, the protagonist of the show, played by Brian Cranston. And in this scene, Gus is trying to convince Walter to work for him, no matter the cost. Why did you make these decisions? For the good of my family. Then they weren't bad decisions. What does a man do, Walter? A man provides for his family. This costs me my family. When you have children, you always have family. They will always be your priority, your responsibility. And a man, a man provides. And he does it even when he's not appreciated, or respected, or even loved. He simply bears does it because he's a man. Giancarlo Esposito, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. You know, people are going to hear me greet you and they're going to think that it's not Jersey enough. I'm not giving you the Giancarlo Esposito. Well, but we talked about this. We did. And, and you say my name absolutely perfectly. And I still hear some Jersey in there. It's all right. <laughs> So we were just hearing uh, Gus Fring. Gus Fring is uh, one of the scariest men probably on television ever. Talk to me a little bit about how you see Gus Fring. Well, I loved hearing this particular clip from the show because A Man Provides is such a very wonderful speech. And I was listening uh, and what was resonating for me was at that particular time and even now, um, I feel that way myself. So there were so many parts of Gus in our first episode that I ever did uh, in, that was written into the stage direction that really inspired me and inspires me to this day. I felt as if this particular A Man Provides speech was so important to my life because I have four children and because as a man, I realized the value of being the hunter-gatherer the storyteller who goes into the world to um, bring home um, the bacon, to bring home the stories from the world that teaches his family and illuminates their journey 
as to where he's been and how much he loves and cares for them, that he does whatever it takes. Gustavo Fring, for me, is a man who has a very high moral standard and someone who does care about his family of workers in his businesses, no matter what he does. His businesses are, are he is trying to build as if he's building a million dollar, billion dollar corporation, which he is. He just happens to be dealing in illicit drugs. And so it was important for me to find a way to play this character um, where he did have some regard for our social norms and he did have a feeling about community and he did feel as if people mattered, even uh, above and beyond some of the reprehensible things that he's done to people within the show. So I was committed to playing a different kind of quote unquote villain and didn't want to play anything that was stereotypical. And in my conversations with Vince Gilligan, after I did one episode as a guest star and another episode as a guest star, and he wanted me to consider being a part of the show, I wanted to tell a different story. And I explained to him that that story of Gustavo Fring and his integrity and who he really is was um, was really cued by a stage direction he wrote in the very first episode. And that was hiding in plain sight. And when I think about the number of people who hide even from themselves, but who are hiding from their neighbors and their communities doing illicit things, but they look to be stand-up human beings and you find out that they aren't, that was intriguing to me. And I wanted to create a character built on some of those building blocks. And you played uh, Gustavo Fring on Breaking Bad for several years and then came over to have come over to play him uh, again on Better Call Saul, which takes place a number of years before the events of Breaking Bad. Is it when you take a character who you've already built and you've constructed, is it a different experience to go back and find him? You know, lots of people will play characters kind of progressively later in their lives. What was it like kind of excavating him earlier in his life than you had already built and and kind of encountered him? Working backwards is an interesting thing because, of course, we as actors in playing a role always look for the nuance of something new to play. And this was my biggest concern in going back into Gustavo's history was to be able to really explore his history. Uh, Although in my conversations with Vince Gilligan, the and also in my knowledge of character, we want to keep certain things secret because that is the titillation of the character. The people want to see more. They want to know more that they don't know. They want to surmise. They want to think about what, what, who is he really? So I knew that we'd have a very particular journey in going backwards. For me, it was modulating and thinking about what this man would have been like uh, when he was trying to create his empire. Would he have been as uh, congenial? Uh, would he have been as compassionate to human beings and as a, a, a front uh, looking more uh, compassionate and less agitated or aggravated or intense as we've seen him in Breaking Bad? So it was a challenge for me to work backwards and play a younger, less uh, formulated Gus but someone that we do recognize so that when we're able to put these building blocks together, that they would be perfection. 
And so for me, I went through great toil to find little things and little ways to create Gus as yet a uniquely different character than that of who we saw in Breaking Bad. And Gus, uh, and this is a little bit of a spoiler for people who haven't already watched Breaking Bad, so just be be aware, take your little skip button if you need it. Um, but you played a, a very famous and kind of iconic death scene for Gus on Breaking Bad, which revolved around, you know, Gus being grievously injured, to say the least, and walking out of a room such that he was in profile, but he was from... Uh, we were looking at his his left side of his face, and as the camera pans around, it's the right side of his face that's destroyed. And I've always been curious about how you interpreted that very unusual, comes out of the room, straightens his tie, what the way that was constructed meant for you. It, it meant that you really saw a man who was true to himself. You know, Gus is very meticulous in the conversations that went on between um, myself and Vince in regard to his death were really important to me um, because Vince did say the town's not big enough for both both of you and Walter. And so I fully expected and knew that he was going to get to the sentence where, you know, we've got to find a way to kill you off. And what he and, and for him to consult with me um, just in that uh, alone was quite a great honor. And I said, well, look, Gus walked into a hail of bullets and he knew he was a made man and he knew that he was respected even though he was despised by the cartel. He was respected because you could count that Gus was honest, that Gus was true, that Gus did have the integrity to build the business without cheating, did have the integrity to take care of the folks who stood in the way of that. So for me, this particular last scene was brought everything together. You know, it was my suggestion to Vince. I said, well, so Vince said, well, how might he go out? And I said, look, you've been inspired by my performance, but I was initially inspired by your initial writing of who this character is. We came together, we figured out how it would be done. And Vince goes, oh no, you created the character. You did all that, you did all that. I said, okay, all well and good. But in the end, how would it be done? Well, look. You know, when I get up as a gentleman, I, I, I button my jacket closed in deference to whatever business I might be doing or um, in deference to myself. I straighten my tie because ties do loosen up as we speak more and move more. And it's always been irritating to me to see someone's tie uh, not where it should actually be on their neck. <laughs> and so Vince got very excited and went straightening your tie. I said, well, if you notice in all the dailies, I'm, I'm constantly doing that, making sure that I'm presentable. And for me in my life, um, it's very important to be presentable. I'm very aware of it. I'm very aware of showing respect to the company I'm in by dressing properly, by dressing respectfully, because firstly, I want to respect myself. So that is the whole clue to who Gus really is. No matter what he's doing, he's been raised properly. He had a good mom. <laughs> you know, he had someone mm-hmm, guide him really mm-hmm. well. And so no matter how much anger, how angry he is, how much he wants to be the hothead that's underneath there somewhere in all that anxious, um, very, very subtle performance eye work and physical work that I do that just takes things in. And you can tell Gus is not happy. 
but he is able to be in control of himself because that's what he puts out to the world. So that last scene to me, he's putting out, ready to go. This is the way it turned out. Complete respect. Let's move on. And to me, that's just a wonderful moment, a wonderful television moment that will live on forever. And I have to say, as an as a, an audience member, I also think it's such an interesting turn because if you're watching, it's a really good test of where you are at that moment in terms of watching these characters because when you see him come out of the room and he appears to be uh, he appears to be okay for the first few seconds. Are you hoping he's okay? Um, are you hoping that he has escaped? Are you in any way hoping that that he will somehow survive this attack? Or are you relieved when they swing around and know, you know, Walt got him? Well, what I particularly love about the writing of this show being as dramatic and encompassing such um, such really wonderful balance of kind of um, real life comedy that happens in our lives. These writers and Vince Gilligan is masterful at that because it really reflects real humanity. And that's what I respect about being able to grow a character in a world that's so complete. Somewhere in season four, the audience began to like Gus. Somewhere in season four, they started to pull for Gus because I think they could see and start to realize that no one is black or white. We all would have a question. Look, I read an article, sorry to digress, about an art dealer in New Mexico who hid $2 million worth of gold and jewelry in the mountains 10 years ago to get people to hike more, to get people into nature more. (laughs) You're laughing. This is is on your news feed, baby. And it was found. I believe you. I just think it's an amazing idea. It's an amazing idea. Took 10 years, but the money was finally found by someone. Someone's a billion a millionaire because they finally found it. But so this reminded me a lot of Gus. Gus really cares about people. He wants his business to grow and you can have and, and, and your idea that it's an illicit business is just a judgment to Gus. He could be selling toothpaste, he'd be good at it. But I think about that because I think about the complete character that Gus became in season four, where people started to realize nothing's black and white. So I st- I, I mentioned this, this art dealer and this money and that it was finally found because I realized that if someone came in my house right now and put a million dollars on my desk, I would have to search for my moral line. I would have to search myself for a second to say, wow, that could all make it easier, but do I want it easier? Like I'm very aware of when people give me gifts in my life because I realize, oh, I walk around as Giancarlo Esposito, just me. I'm just a person, a human being. I don't carry my fame, my, my, my glory of that in front of me because I'm confronted so many times by the public as being Gus. And I realize that's powerful enough. But would I be able to hold on to my moral turpitude, my moral line, my integrity, my judgment, my intention if someone offered to buy me out? And it's the true test of your character when you can say, no, that goes against my principles. And so what I think people started to realize was Gus had principles. And yes, people have black and white, dark and light. And sometimes we have to struggle to stay on the right side of that line. And, you know, to me, it is the delusion 
the deluded uh, aspect of what's happened in our society with our our great politicians and and uh, great religious leaders that has that get the line gets blurred and then we start to trade on what we really believe and then we've lost it because we can be bought and so for me uh, there is a real moral lesson in Gus's journey you'll hear the rest of my conversation with Giancarlo Esposito in just a minute did you like me watch the electric company back in the day Did you know Giancarlo worked on that, too? More on that after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. For James McBride, racism in this country has been a disease. It's been the cancer that has just been killing us. And now we want to address the problem. I mean, you can't address the cancer until you know you have it. And these people are seeing the cancer. Author James McBride on protests, a pandemic, and his new book. Listen to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hey, I'm Jared Hill, co-host of the brand new Maximum Fun podcast, Fan Time. And I'm Travel Anderson. I'm the other more fabulous co-host. And the reason you really should be tuning in. I feel the nausea rising. To be Fan is to be a big fan of something, but also have some challenging or anti-feelings toward it. Kind of like Kanye. We're all fans of Kanye. He's a musical genius, but like, you know. He thinks slavery is a choice. Or like the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Like, I love the drama, but do I want to see black women fighting each other on screen? Ew, too. We're tackling all of those complex and complicated conversations about the people, places, and things that we love. Even though they may not love us back. Fan time. Maximum fun. Podcast. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is Giancarlo Esposito. He plays Gus Fring on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He's appeared in dozens of other movies and TV shows, including Spike Lee's legendary Do the Right Thing. Let's get back into our interview. You know, it's interesting that you would mention um, the importance of holding to your your principles, because I do also want to talk to you about uh, Do the Right Thing. This is a film you play. Uh, Spike Lee plays Mookie, who is a pizza delivery guy uh, in Bed-Stuy. He works at a an Italian pizzeria. And uh, the guy you play, Buggin' Out, is one of his buddies and probably the most famous, I'm going to say the most famous Buggin' Out scene is a scene in which um, he's walking down the street with a fresh pair of white Jordans on, a white guy in a Larry Bird jersey bumps into him, messes up his sneakers, and Buggin' Out confronts the guy. We're going to listen to this clip. Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? Yo, what you want to live in a black neighborhood for anyway, man? Mother gentrification. Well, huh. as I understand it, this is a free country. Man can live wherever he wants. Free country? Man, I should oh you for saying that stupid shit alone. <laughs> when that guy says free country, I just... It's so... It's so... Ugh the way he does it how did you how did you build bugging out he's a really interesting i want to say kid but he's a really interesting guy he's got you know glasses and you know he sort of goes around trying to rise up trying to get a boycott going against the pizzeria how did you develop bugging out you know um i i loved this script when i first laid eyes on it and when we started to actually rehearse for a, a week beforehand, we have the the film that was made by St. Clair Bourne 
which takes us through the rehearsal process of Do the Right Thing, which I think is really quite brilliant. I wanted um, Buggin' Out to be someone who had um, a taste of what it might be like to be at a protest or rally and feel like they were listened to, who had very little bit of knowledge about um, Black history, but knew that he was a victim of injustice over and over again, just by virtue of the color of his skin and the way he looked. But yet I wanted him, and you mentioned the glasses, so it made me think, because Spike was like, all through the rehearsal process, you know, what you going to do? What you going to do with your hair? What you going to do? Because every Spike Lee movie, I would do something different with my hair, with my look, because I wanted to completely transform myself into what the character uh, dictated uh, that the look and the feel should be. And Spike was so hesitant when I said I'm wearing glasses. And I did that partly as an homage to Spike, because Spike felt to me like he had uh, a, a large dose of bugging out within him. And so Spike was like, I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. And so I got these big bifocals and I wore contact lenses to reverse the prescription. It was a whole ordeal. I went to my optometrist. I had them made. And he said, why do you want glasses? Why do you want glasses? I said, because I wanted him to be, to appear to be someone who had a chink in his armor, a weakness. He couldn't really see as well as he wanted to. And that was, for me, uh, a tactic to allow myself to not be able to see as much as I wanted to. So Buckingham's not a, he's not a, you know, he's not a senator, a, a congressman, a spokesperson for the people. He's the person who's lived it, who gets excited by a small piece of information of, that he may have gotten about Malcolm X that incited him to find his voice. But he's a little off the rails because he doesn't have a platform yet. So I wanted to encompass all of those things within this character. Someone who is searching to find his own blackness within the world that we call, as John Savage said in this beautiful scene, wonderful actor, a free country. I often call, say, we're in this place called America. Yes, I respect the flag. Yes, and I was raised Roman Catholic, First Baptist, then Roman Catholic, became an altar boy, almost a priest, went to military school, almost went into the military. Very, 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 um, I, I felt as if I belonged to some something because I could call myself an American. Very nationalistic way of thinking. But I realized that people call themselves American, but they don't act like they're Americans because they don't act like human beings. So I'm really, really happy that you moved on to this movie. I didn't expect you to, nor did I realize you were going to. A week ago, I was sitting in my living room thinking, what do I tell my children? I am a mixed race human being with a dear friend of Spike Lee. We've had over and over disagreements about white, black, white, black, until he finally looked at me and said, well, if we have a revolution, what side are you going to go to? Are you going to be with your father? Or are you going to be with your mother? I said, Spike, how can you ask me that question? He said, well, then you are an Afro-European. <laughs> and we'd argue about that for an hour. And then we'd hug and kiss and go, okay, uh, we agree to disagree on certain things. But I was in my living room thinking, what do I tell my children? Watching a clip of the civil unrest and the protests in front of the Minneapolis police station. I saw a clip in the afternoon with Minneapolis police on the roof. And the first thought that came into my mind, they were setting up barricades on the roof of the building, was that's not going to last long. I hope it does, but that's not going to last long. 
The next clip I saw at 11 o'clock at night, I had tears in my eyes and I got shudders because they were chanting, no justice, no peace, same chances were in, do the right thing. The clip that they showed of the building burning, just like Sal's pizzeria burning. And I was taken back to 1989. And I cried because I thought, what do I tell my children? Because nothing's really changed. And how do we have it change? And I, the deplorable scene made me cry because I saw then the days after that, people destroying their own neighborhoods, their own local groceries, which will never reopen, to be able, you know, all the looting and all that. And I said, I can't get behind this. And here we are five days after that, and a new dimension of transformation has happened with the world. Forget just the African-American community in Brooklyn. Forget just the African-American community in Watts. It's the whole world now says enough is enough. And now I feel like we have the beginnings of a conversation that can change legislation, can change systemic, systemic racism within our organizations that look at people who come through the door as being trouble or being bad. I had a Jewish buddy growing up. His name was Paul Budish. I'll never forget it. He could never say my name right. He said, Giancarlo Esposito, mal. He would say it really fast because he couldn't say it right in the beginning. And he put a mal afterwards, which means bad in Spanish, mal, mal, mal. And I said, Paul, why do you do that? He said, because you're black, you're bad. That's the reference we get is that, you know, you, you got something, your, your, your intentions aren't good. And so I had to start laughing. So I've lived with this kind of feeling for years and years and years. And the only way for me to heal my own anger and resentment was to, be, to become an actor, to be able to be the best that I could be, to have meritocracy play in my life. That I'm not going to play into the race card and I'm not going to play into the they's. They won't allow this. They won't allow that. So personally for me, uh, this movie is very strong and very powerful. The, the, the nugget of sweetness and gold is that it still holds up today and that it inspires people from our recent and local and nuanced peaceful protests that come out of all the violence that happened last week is that positive change is possible because now we're all human. So I encourage people to get human. And that's, that's been my whole thing with Spike, who I totally understands this now. And his anger, he's still angry, he still protests, he still does all the things he needs to do, but he's become an advocate for humanity. And it begins with his African-American humanity, and it extends to the world humanity that is being shown today in light of all that's come about since George Floyd's murder. Well, and one of the mil when I went back to watch, uh, when I did go back to watch Do the Right Thing, one of the things that really stuck out to me that I that I don't know if it gets as much attention as you know, there's a fire, there's unrest, there's the there's the death of Radio Rahim and the the ensuing kind of destruction. But I don't hear as much about the fact that the police officers who kill him put his body in the back of the car and drive away, and so. The the idea that there is supposed to be a protective function, which is what they are, you know, which is what they're basically there for, theoretically, it always seemed very emphatic and intentional to me that they that they leave and they leave the neighborhood on its own and Sal and his sons on their own. If you are concerned about the pizzeria at that point, that always yeah. has struck me as one of the, the the major decisions of the ending of that film. Yes, indeed. And, and, you know, Spike obviously made a decision to have the film end that way. 
in, within the last five minutes of the film because the police are afraid for their lives uh, because of what they had represented in the past to human beings, and especially the African-American community. And to take that, you know, as a general response is what many people have done. Look, I had two children go to the march. One of my gals went in New York City last week. She went to two marches a day for five days. And she and her two white friends she went with uh, were approached by an African-American police officer. And they immediately took three steps back. My girl's black, her two friends are white, because they were afraid. They didn't know what to expect from this human being who then took a step closer to them, which made them even more frightened, but they stood their ground. And this black officer said, thank you. Thank you for being here today. So I've heard those stories from my children. Two of my other daughters went to a different march and they were also greeted by African-American police officers who couldn't look them in the eye. They were so ashamed to be part of a battalion that were, I guess they call it um, huddling or barreling. They were moving this crowd of peddling, peddling, moving this crowd of protesters into an unfortunate physical situation where they knew something would happen. So they were forcing the situation. But what we haven't talked about here, Linda, at all is guns. We don't talk about that. We got all this going on, talking about police injustice and all this stuff, but no one has talked about the fact that we are a gun-loving nation out of our amendment right that allows us to do to be to carry guns and have them. And what about the countries? London, for one, has bobbies for years. They don't carry guns. So is that tool or that weapon of protection, um, is that tool... Should that tool be in the hands of police anymore? Now we have the tool is the knee, right? The knee, the chokehold, the, the way that people have been trained. But when do we get to the point where we talk about gun violence in our society as equal to the violence that is systemic racism? Because it's in a way it moves together hand in hand, because if I feel threatened, whether I'm a police officer or an African-American in my community, that's a really rough neighborhood, I'm going to feel consoled by having a gun. I have a way to protect myself if no one else will. So that has to eventually enter the conversation as well, because it all boils down to, are we going to be a peaceful, humanitarian, understanding, compassionate society? Or are we going to be a society when all the words are gone, I can go get my nine and put a hole in it? And I think when you asked earlier about kind of what it means when people talk about defunding or abolishing police, I think one of the things that some of those folks are talking about, the argument is if you had police with different equipment, right? You don't necessarily need to send people who look like they are outfitted for war for everything that people currently call the police for. They don't, they currently, if people are calling the police because you know, they're worried that the next door neighbor is sick or hurt. You know, the need for the need for everybody to come in with guns, as you say, you know, armed to the teeth, as they say, it sends a message. Presumably a little bit different. 
Mm-hmm. It is. It sends a different kind of message. I remember being on the Brooklyn Bridge in a 1964 Plymouth Valiant on my way to have dinner with Paul Auster and Siri Hustavit, two wonderful authors. Paul, I've, I've done a, a couple of films with, a wonderful, wonderful writer. I remember on that bridge um, changing lanes, and I remember putting my blinker on. I remember seeing the lights of the police car flash behind me. And I went, what did I do wrong? I put my blinker on. Well, certainly I was pulled over. I remember the mother of my children, who is white, being with me. And I immediately rolled my window down, told her to roll hers down. Why? Roll it down. Right? I just wanted to say, look, you know, you're married to a black man. I stopped the car, put my hands on the dashboard, and looked in my rearview mirror. And these police officers came out of their car with guns trained on me out of the holster, on me. And I went, oh, okay. Even if I didn't have my blinker on, why would they come to my car with their guns drawn? Would they have done that if I was white? And they kept their guns drawn on me and my former wife until they got a sense of who I was and that I wasn't going to be maybe combative. So the mindset is everything. You know, my intention was diffuse it all. Don't get angry. Don't accuse them of any wrongdoing. Stay within the line so you don't get shot. My former wife, Joy, was beside herself that I was I could accept that treatment and that that would be just the way it works for a black man in our time. This is going back many years, but nothing's changed. So that's one story. I worked at the Atlantic Theater Company doing a play by John Patrick Shanley called Storefront Church. We were in our final rehearsals before our first preview. We finished our rehearsal, our tech rehearsal, that's right, 12-hour tech, at 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. I walked out of the theater to go to my car, which is parked in front, to get a change of clothes. And on my way, and I hear sirens maybe a block away. I finished getting my clothes, my belongings. I walk back into the courtyard of the theater And there are six police officers who pulled up to the theater, three cars, six cops, all with their guns drawn, and told me to stop where I was and drop the bag, screaming at me, drop the bag, drop the bag. I dropped the bag with my clothes on it. What are you doing here? And I'm dressed in character in a suit for the play. And I said, I'm rehearsing a play. We're doing our tech. They're inside. My hands are up in the air. They told me, get on the ground. I got on the ground. They searched my bag. I said, why am I being stopped? Well, there was an assault a block from here. And one of the cop, and another cop chimed in and said, it was some black man in a hoodie. And I said, I started laughing. I'm on the ground in a suit. I said, well, do I fit the description of the black man in the hoodie that you're looking for? No answer. They get me off the ground, still don't believe me or want to let me go because the front of the theater was under construction. So they figured maybe I was there doing some riffraff until we got inside. The director, the cat, everyone's shocked. They're guiding me into the theater with guns drawn on me to corroborate and, and, and who I am. And they finally let it all go. I mentioned it to a reporter. Al Sharpton called me the next day. You got to stand up for this. You got to go on TV. You got to do this and that. I said, Al, that's just not where I'm at with this today. And that was going back about 10 years. So 
All of these have come back to me watching the clip of Do the Right Thing in the protest because I feel like I've never shared these stories. You're the first I've shared both of these stories with ever. But I realize that lends to my pain. That boosts and substantiates my suspicion of the police. That boosts and substantiates my suspicion that I have to act a certain way because otherwise I, you know, I've got to act a certain way today so that I can still be here tomorrow. And that's BS. That's horrible. So when I realize the pain I have inside that I don't access and I cover up every day and I don't share with my children about feeling unsafe in our free country, it does make me angry. It makes me angry and sad and anxious. And and it makes me feel like, what the hell am I doing here? I'm only half, you know, uh, American. I'm Italian. I should go back to Italy. You know, all those things come up for me because I feel like, No one will ever know me. And this may be the cry and the call and the shout and the pleading. Because if you only know my color of my skin, then you don't really know me. And we all want to be seen. We all want to be recognized. We all want to be be seen in a light that is truly who we are. So... These are important issues for me, and this is why I choose the roles I do in a specific way. I chose the role of Gus Fring partly because I wanted people to know the scourge of crystal meth, that our country is, we are part of that, that that this is a horrible drug that takes people's lives, has people working off of greed. It's a horrible thing that it's done to our country. We've allowed it in because economically it does help. A certain way, I think our government has made has just become sort of complacent with the fact that there this is a channel for some kind of e- economy. I don't know what it is that doesn't stop that. I chose do the right thing because I felt like the message was important to me, and I choose projects because if I'm able to finally tell you these two stories, I'm I'm willing to release my anger. I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to be more understanding of who I am. I'm willing to stand up and have my voice be heard, Uh, not in a way that says all are bad, but in a way that says, don't you see, we need reform. Now's the time. Before I let you go, I want to play one more thing. It's strictly personal on my part. This is the first work of yours that I remember. I love it so much. I had to play it. Go ahead. Roll the clip. Oh, I love it. That is the theme song to the electric company. If you're not lucky enough to have been born in 1970 like I was and grow up watching the electric company, you sang on that track. I sure did. I sure did. You bring me back. Jerry Graff, wonderful man who uh, was connected uh, to the electric company, thought that I would be a great fit for that show. Uh, I remember getting this offer and being head over heels about having the ability to be uh, singing on this track, introducing this particular show, which led me to years later be Big Bird's camp counselor on a two-week stint uh, at Bear Mountain on Sesame Street. 
So for me, this was the first time that I really belonged. I belonged to a family of young people uh, in a show that was revelatory about education and emotions and saying how you feel and being a kid and that being all right. Oh, I'm so glad you saw that show. That was just, oh, it's like yesterday to me because I, I feel like that was my opportunity to be a part of the whole and I fit and it felt good. Honestly, I loved Sesame Street. I loved Mr. Rogers, but Electric Company was the one that my like kind of loud, playful kid was most excited by Electric Company. So I appreciated very, very much. Wow. I so appreciate that you were moved by that because um, it was a very special time for me. I then, like my children now, are struggling to find out where they lie within their blackness and where does their blackness lie within the community and where does the community lie within the country and the world. And I want them to become individuals with a very distinct point of view. And the electric company allowed me to feel a part of a whole, which gave me back the gift of being an individual because I felt like I had talent and I knew that through my talent, I could uplift people, make people laugh, make people cry, have people look deeper into who they really are, and have people, young people, look to see who they want to be. Because I believe you can be whoever you want to be. Your integrity and intention uh, has to be sincere, and it, it has to be passionate. Because my one blessing is, and you bless me with all these clips, and you take me through parts of my life that I haven't been to in a long time, and it helps me to realize and understand that the reason why I feel as if I am still so deeply in love with what I do is because I'm still excited by it. I still feel like it's a viable way for us to share. And the fact that I have so many things to be able to share in my career um, really humbles me and allows me to know I'm one of the lucky ones. So my advice to my children and all young people, and even people who are, you know, more in my age range, you know, over 50, you know, if you're not happy with what you're doing in your life, change it. You don't, you don't have to, you know, oftentimes in the old days and my parents, you know, they couldn't change because they felt like they committed and that was it. But I've reinvented myself over and over again. And I, I, I believe that we have the ability to do that. We should be doing what makes us happy and what makes us proud and makes us smile and gives us that little tingle inside. And if we don't have that, move on, find something else, find the tingle. Because the tingle is the energy of life. And the tingle is the energy of service. And the tingle is the energy of being fulfilled in the skin that you were given, in the talent that you were given, in the creativity that you were given. I don't care what you do. I'm talking in business. I'm talking whatever it is, find the juice. Because the juice of the electricity that will allow you to be original, authentic, and so very, very real and human. Giancarlo Esposito, thank you so much for talking to me. This was really, really fun. I had so much fun with you. You were a joy to speak to, and thanks for covering so much territory in this short conversation. Giancarlo Esposito. You can rent or stream the latest season of Better Call Saul now. He's very scary in it. The show's been picked up for a sixth and final season, set to premiere sometime next year. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around various parts of the country. It's hot. 
Our colleague Stacy Molsky started a garden a few months ago and this week received a complimentary Thai basil plant. It came from the owner of Jitlada, one of LA's most popular restaurants. She's found that it prospers better indoors when it's hot. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song's by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can keep up with the show on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. Search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Mine is thanks, Jesse. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.